thanks for being here, man. Of course. So you're someone I've seen to be very politically active mm -hmm. uh, via social media, of course, your work in mm -hmm. your work in DC. What point got you invested in politics? For, because for a lot of people, there is that one specific point. For me, it was as early as the first Obama campaign, others the 2016 election, and as of recent, the 2018 midterms. What right. point was it for you? Um, okay, so uh, I kind of take that as a trick question because uh, I feel like there's a lot of like extremely important points throughout my life that kind of informed political, Chris. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I mean, uh, the big, the the, the most essential thing, obviously, was, you know, growing up in a political household. My my mom has always been a staunch Democrat. My dad has always been a staunch Republican um, up until recently. Uh, <laughs> and so I always got this, like, mix of political ideas. And there, I mean, there was always, like, you know, feuds about, uh, oh, Obama this, McCain that, and stuff like that. So I always got a healthy mix. And I went from uh, uh, leading up to the tw uh, 2008 election uh, hearing all sides of the argument to moderating the debates to participating in the debates uh, to being the person that both my parents go to to you know fact check things and actually get the real scoop about things uh, so I guess that's kind of uh, what made me innately political is kind of growing up in that environment especially in a place like Katie but I think what actually got me involved my neighbor who I carpooled the school with when I was 15 one day out of the blue asked me if I wanted to join the Republicans club that she was uh, creating. And that kind of took me aback. Was it, did the, did the question take you back? Because like, I guess she assumed that you were a Republican or. Not that, but the fact that at that point, I, I kind of realized that Katie at that point was an extremely conservative community. This was 2015 right. uh, before the 2016 election, before things started getting crazy in the suburbs. Um, it, I, I kind of realized that it wasn't really a hospitable environment for Democrats or for liberals, but I didn't really internalize the fact that something could be done about it. Uh, so mm. what I actually did in response to that is I established the uh, Democrats Club and um, started doing meetings and stuff for that. Uh, we got like 30 or 40 active members over the course of the, the three years that I was the president of it. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the point that I actually you know, got, went from being like this, um, oh, you should pay attention to politics kind of thing uh, into like actually activism on the issues and stuff uh, was probably the Parkland shooting. Um, Cause that, I mean, I think that took everyone aback regardless of what their beliefs were, mm -hmm. uh, were or, or how politically inclined or involved they were. That That's something that struck everyone. Uh, I, at that point, I kind of became involved with March for Our Lives Houston, uh, uh, which was a bunch right. of other, kids both older and younger than I interested in that issue uh and then after the march they did a series of town halls around the country and I put on one at uh, Seven Lakes and we had something like 10 candidates attend from running for positions such as school board um all the way up to congress uh we had 10 candidates uh republicans democrats and independents all participating 80 people attending press attending uh, it being covered by the Huffington Post, which was something, uh, you know, that kind of took me by surprise. Uh, and then from that, establishing uh, contacts in this newly forming, uh, newly minted political circle of Democrats in uh, Katy in the Fort Bend County area, that all kind of coalesced into this realization that, whoa, this is something that i really passionate about, something I really care about, something that I want to do. 
uh, something that I want to continue doing. And since then, it's been politics, I guess. Right. This was I'm, I'm kind of in the middle of Obama's dreams from from his father, that that book that he had written in about the mid 90s. And he had gone through a process where he had also hosted a town hall and mm -hmm. the mayor of Chicago. I think it was it was a town hall or an event that they were putting on. The mayor of Chicago came and they had all these issues with the mayor. But when the mayor came, everybody was more so starstruck or more so like, oh, this the mayor's here rather than like, OK, th these are the questions we need to get through. So whenever you had Republicans and Democrats come to the town hall, was was there being there more so like, oh, OK, you know, hi, we're here. Or were they actually listen, willing to listen to the students and the people there? You know, I do think that they were listening. I was disappointed that not a lot came of it, that Parkland uh, very easily became just another one of the shootings that kind of blew over uh, without a lot of meaningful change done. Um, I don't know if you remember, but Trump, uh, he actually initially came out in full-throated full support for a lot of the, the things that the, the Parkland students and the student activists across the country that that they, that they were demanding, uh, he initially came out and it kind of took a lot of people by surprise, but eventually he walked it back, things quieted down. Uh, there hasn't been another march. I mean, the, that same circle is still politically involved, but not necessarily in the same way. Uh, so I do think people listened and I think maybe the biggest impact was uh, the realizations that happened uh, among the populace, among the, among the electorate. I think it kind of pushed the needle at, in that way, but nothing really tangibly came about it, which was probably the biggest disappoint disappointment. Right. Yeah. And what would you propose? And of course, there's no like concrete solution to, mm -hmm. to all of this. It's, it's so complex. But there have been moments where movements have risen. People get very excited on social media. They get very um, politically active. They go to their phones. And then within a couple of weeks or so, the, the momentum kind of goes down a little bit. Uh, what would you suggest people do to keep the conversation going? So like, I guess these, these waves of activi activism don't keep on coming. It just keeps that wave consistent. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the simple answer is that you don't let the conversation die. Mm -hmm. You just keep talking about it, talking about it, talking about it. You keep making it a thing. You, you, you don't let it die off. Um, and I mean, you, 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 another thing that you have to do is you also have to work within the system. Uh, something that I've learned uh, up in D.C. is that there's a very particular way of doing things. And if you're not able to operate under those pretenses, then there's a little there's little to no chance that you'll actually be able to get things done. Mm -hmm. um, so you you have to be able to work within that system, or at least present your ideas within that system, uh, whether or not you operate outside of it. Uh, you have to, you know, just keep talking about it, remain active. I, I am uh, very inspired by a lot of what's going on with, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter. There are still protests happening in the streets in all of the major cities across the United States. They may not be being covered by media, but it's still happening. Uh, we've seen Republican senators that would have historically been apprehensive to offer their support to a movement like that uh, come out in full support of it. You, you had Mitt Romney uh, marching in the streets in Washington, D.C. Yeah. You had um, a, a conservative firebrand, uh, this senator from Indiana, I think his name's Mike Brown, uh, come out and say that he supports the movement, which took pretty much everyone aback. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, we're, that movement is pushing the needle. Um, you've seen Black Lives Matter as an organization 
and as a movement go from pulling in the negatives to pulling in the positives of favorability, which it, I mean, just a lot of what's going on right now is unprecedented. And a lot of that is because there's a lot of frustration. This has been something that's happening for, for decades now, but, but I think a lot of the success that's come right now is because people haven't been willing to stop talking about it. The main thing I keep on seeing is, you know, the, the media keeps on jumping on the fact that they're in disbelief that the president has reacted this way. But at some mm -hmm. point, I think a lot of people are becoming a little numb to it, um, which isn't necessarily a good sign. But I think that as easy of, a, of an answer it can be um, to jump to is like the, the, the main point is like in the end of the day, I think you've, you've got to go stand in line or in this case, we'll see what the situation is. But like basically mm -hmm. vote. And I think yeah, you, it, it's getting to a point where it's like, yeah, th this guy's r ridiculous. The president is ridiculous in the statements and everything that he believes and a lot of his, his actions that he makes and his motive is based off of pure ego. Um, so I think the frustrations at this point are building up more and more. And the hope is that, you know, people just don't uh, stay behind a keyboard and tweet, but more so like actually mm -hmm. go ahead and vote. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's and that's kind of the thing that I was about to get into is that you've got to vote for people who's who are willing to stand for what you what you believe in and stand for what's right. And that man's got to go. Um, right. I mean, he should have been impeached and removed um, uh, months ago. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, we didn't have people in power who had the guts to do that. But I mean, there is little to no change that's going to be able to be done with a, a Republican controlled Senate and with President Trump in power. So everyone has to go vote. Uh, right. this November. And I know the argument from the Obama administration and a lot of his frustration was the fact that he couldn't get something done because of the mm -hmm. uh, because of the Republican Congress. But then you look back in the 90s and you see the way Clinton worked with the Republican Congress. Yeah, they kind of did give, like they were still somewhat um, a pain every now and then. But d do you think more and more the two parties are getting separated from one another. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, polarization is something that um, I guess identified as an issue both in the textbooks and you know, like in the actual functions of things. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's just a stone cold fact that the parties have been moving apart and becoming increasingly gridlocked. And I think Trump really accentuated a lot of that because he stoked a lot of the same kind of cultural um, cultural issues and fears and stuff and all the things that kind of separated separate us um, ideologically, he's augmented them and made them into this monstrous thing where it's almost as if we live in two different worlds, even if we believe the same thing. So yeah, absolutely. Right. And I know you had worked on the Kukarni for Congress campaign when he ran for the uh, 22nd in Texas back in 2018. Yes. Um, yeah. What were some key things you learned from that campaign, guessing that being some of your earliest work in politics? That was a ton of fun. I loved working for Shri. Um, uh, I guess uh, to preface this, I would like to say that he's running again um, this year. And um, that when I hopped on the campaign, he was still um, he was still kind of like an underdog kind of both yeah. in the general election and in the primary when I became involved with him. Um, he kind of came in at the 11th hour and surprised everyone and built this massive organization um, and end up, ended up winning the thing, losing the general election, but significantly narrowing the margin and surprising right. everyone yeah. on the ground and 
uh, well, not everyone on the ground, but you know, like everyone with their faces on the TV screens and everyone up in, in DC and the lobbying offices and stuff like that. Like he basically came out of nowhere uh, with the unprecedented campaign strategy of, you know, um, reaching out to to people in their native languages, um, having people parts people who are parts of those same communities uh, participate in them, reach out to them. Um, I think there was a lot of press towards the end of 2018 about how his campaign was uh, running in like 22 different languages, yeah. uh, which was, I think, an especially uh, profound thing uh, considering how diverse uh, the 22nd congressional district is. I think it has like over 120 different like major ethnic groups comprised within it. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't even know how many different languages are spoken or different dialects of languages. But in any case, that shows that he still has some work to do if he's only doing 22. Um, <laughs> but it's, he kind of ran this unprecedented campaign and kind of paved the way for uh, a new way of campaigning, both in the suburbs and in, uh, you know, diverse communities such as Katy, Sugarland, Carolland, Missouri yeah. City, and, and, you know, Houston as a whole. And I think that working for him were probably, was probably one of my most profound moments in the past few years. Um, and now he's gone on from being this underdog running in what was believed to be a solidly Republican race to running in an open seat against, um, if I may be frank, two uh, crazy Republicans. Um, <laughs> and um, and now it's kind of being treated by uh, uh, the political establishment, uh, both parties as this marquee race. Uh, it's kind of the one that's um, at the center of 2020. And, um, yeah, I'm really excited for him. How are you, so how are you feeling about 2020 for um, for Cool Carney? You know, I still think that I I am very excited for the campaign that he's putting on and for all the hard work that he's doing and for uh, and that unlike 2018 that he's uh, been recognized this entire time as the, the kind of star that he is. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I'm still also cautiously optimistic because this is a district that voted for Mitt Romney by what, like 20, 25 points in 2012 and has historically been like the Republican bastion of the state. It's mm. been where the Republican party has been based um, and it's entirely new frontier. So I am, you know, cautiously optimistic uh, about his chances, but I know that he has uh, the guts to win this thing. And I'm hoping that 2020 is the year. Yeah, me too. I. I definitely, I definitely follow his campaign too, and I, I think a, a lot of the times, I kind of try and see it as like who's who's the right person, right? For the, of course, I think everybody approaches it that way, but more so, kind of like I guess something I've gotten a little bit from watching The West Wing is like who is like is is he is he the person, right? Is, is this guy the guy, or is this person the, like is this the woman to like lead us based on like yeah. character and like their voting record? Um, and even like watching the Democratic debates last year, uh, there are very few people I was able to pinpoint as like, oh, this is the person I could really get behind, like someone like Elizabeth Warren. Um, uh -huh. So I always felt the same way about Cool Carney, um, that, you know, this genuinely is a person I think who could lead us. And yeah. I'm, I'm definitely excited to see like where, uh, where exactly like this thing can go. Um, uh -huh. And I, I know, I know you've also worked 
as a congressional intern for both the House and the Senate. And yeah. you now having worked for Cool Kearney and also being a, um, a campaign manager, a, a lot of that is what I see as like getting down, mm-hmm. like rolling up your sleeves, talking to people. And then when you go to D.C., it's this political hub. Many times representatives can lose their touch with the real world. Uh, mm-hmm. When working for con- Congressman Lizzie Fletcher and Senator Doug Jones, did you see that effort to really connect with their people? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, uh, Lizzie, she ran or she ran and won in a district that's uh, very similar to uh, the 22nd Congressional District, the district that she's running in. Mm-hmm. Um, um, historically, the bastion of Republican politics in Texas. It's George Bush's old district when he was in Congress. Mm. Um um, and it voted for Mitt Romney by like 20 points, same wow. kind of deal. And so I feel like there's this inclination of needing to uh, reach out and, you know, be a representative for everyone and be on the same page as everyone. And kind of, uh, I feel like she was very in tune with the pulse of her district, especially where it is right now uh, in this moment as a suburban district that didn't really respond very mm-hmm. kindly to Trump or, right. uh, or Ted Cruz. So um, I think definitely for Lizzie, um, and I think kind of the same deal for Doug Jones. I I do want to say, um, both electorally speaking and just like as a person, that I think that Doug Jones is a one of a kind man. Um, he is a true statement statesman of what politics ought to be. For sure. Um, oh yeah, for sure. I think he was elected for a reason, and he has been dedicated has been dedicating himself to issuing positive change his entire life. He prosecuted uh, the Klansmen that bombed uh, that church in, in uh, Birmingham mm-hmm. or Montgomery, however however many years ago, uh, he's the one who prosecuted that. Uh, he's the, um, and he's dedicated his entire time to Washington as as fleeting as, as people have treated his moments to be, being, you know, a democratic Senator from Alabama yeah. um, with, with grace and with an imperative to do good work. Um, and working in his office, I, I was just continuously floored by his his compassion and his um, and his eagerness to work with everyone and his willingness to get along with everyone and actually get things done. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and I, I think when he when he won, there was this rhetoric that oh, he's just the Democrat who won Alabama, um, like after like a very heated campaign. And, you know, looking at his record and also like knowing the type of person he was, I think personally, I definitely had faith in the sen- in Senator Doug Jones, because mm-hmm. like, like you said, he's he's I think through and through just from what I've seen, at least a solid person and, and so far a solid senator. So fast forward, um, you are now a Biden national delegate. Uh, yes. What did that process look like? Um, well, it was. Definitely strange uh, with, you know, COVID and stuff. Um, In an ideal world or in a normal world, um, I would have, you know, actually been campaigning on the ground for that, um, going to like two or three different physical conventions Mm -hmm. to, and, you know, like politicking to try to secure that role. Um, But, um, but obviously that was, it was all shifted virtually. We had uh, just one like virtual caucus and then a stage of a bunch of different like, you know, online votes and stuff like that as a caucus. And uh, it was all virtual get out the vote. Uh, and basically what that turned into was, you know, getting people to check their emails. Um, 
obviously it completely changed the whole game. Uh, but from the moment that, you know, I got in the race, um, I was kind of dedicated to doing it because, you know, you look at politics right now and it's, it's still kind of a sport for old white men. Um, you don't see uh, young people in politics. You don't see people of color in politics. You don't see women in politics. Right. And um, I wanted to do the best that I could to, to, you know, change that. I was the only person under 34 or 35 uh, who ran for the position in this, in, in my district. Wow. Uh, I ran against, it was a six-way race. Come August, do you know what the Democratic National Convention is going to look like now that delegates have been told to stay home? Yeah, um, so I think with the Texas uh, convention, I think the Texas convention served as a big model for a lot of that. I think Texas is, was uh, probably the most ambitious one out of all the other states um, in that they ran a full-fledged convention, but literally did all the same things that they would do like on the convention floor and like all the events and stuff, but just made it online and it worked. And uh, they raised tons of money they uh, you know, got tons of people involved. It was streamed by either tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. And I think that that kind of set the foundation for what I think the national party is going to do. Admittedly, I don't know anything more than the general public knows, I will say, okay. um, as for how it's going to operate or what's going to be done. But um, uh, I, I'm assuming that it's going to be similar to Texas's. What do you have to, again, this is another issue I think brought, not just by um, me, the media that we watch on television, but also, again, a lot of the rhetoric that's been being pushed on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, the fact that now there is some idea that basically Biden and Trump are the same person. Similarly, in 2016, where people compared Hillary and Trump as the same person. What do, you, what do you have to say for that push or, or for every time that reason to not vote for a particular candidate and then have to compare them to the current person in office? When people say that a vote for Joe Biden is a vote for Donald Trump or that they're one of the same, I, 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 I can't help but think that that's bullshit, you know, because only one of those people like openly supports gay rights, trans rights, right. um, supports, um, you know, me being able to exist. Uh, only one of those people uh, supports, you know, a woman's rights to choose. Um, only one of those people supports, you know, quite literally saving our environment from um, environmental catastrophe, yeah. from having a livable planet. Um, um, one of those people has been actively, um, you know, gutting the same kind of regulations that Obama put in place uh, during his terms in favor of, 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 you know, like, uh, no regulations, being able to dump sewer into water, sewage into water. Like it, it's just completely, it, it's just bullshit. I, I, I don't get how people can say that. Like right. what, what, you, we have a, a very clear evil and not evil here. Mm -hmm. And and I, and I get, and, and I, and I understand that people, um, like have their different ide ideological beliefs. And I understand why people would vote for Trump on the basis of him, of them aligning with uh, their beliefs. But I, I, I don't get why people are willing to, to, to sit on the sidelines and say that this man that, you know, like 
that's uh, that has his cronies committing obstruction of justice that um, you know committed impeachable offenses and um, just has had how many lies to the media and to the public throughout the past four to six years? Like I, I, I don't get it. I I go on all day giving you reasons why that's complete bullshit. I, I myself do have friends who are Trump supporters, and it's not like that. The conversation doesn't go down like, oh, you know, you're a Trump supporter. That's bullshit. We're we're ending the conversation, right? And I think very mm-hmm. so like that. It could get pretty heated pretty fast. Um, but like, I I do know for, for a fact, and I conf- confidently sit here and say that like those friends do, that I do have who are Trump supporters, in the, in the end of the day, at their core, I do know they're also decent people. So how do you go about, I guess, calmly talking to Republicans and those who are still in favor for voting for Trump, or maybe they see some kind of benefit or economic benefit in voting for President Trump? You know, I think good Americans can have their disagreements on um, who they vote for, what Mm -hmm. they believe in and why they vote for um, the people that they do. I think that that doesn't make you any less American to to support Trump Mm -hmm. or to support Joe Biden or to support Howie Hawkins or whoever it is. I I don't think that that makes you any less American. I think a lot of that's enshrined in the First Amendment, the right to be able to have those opinions. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously, I have my own, you have your own, all those people have their own. And I think that we agree on a lot more than we disagree on. Yeah. Um, and I mean, and especially looking at the discourse surrounding Black Lives Matter. I, you know, I was in a very heated exchange with a stranger on Facebook uh, the other <laughs> day, and which has become somewhat of, an, of a norm uh, <laughs> these times, you know, uh, COVID. Right. But, um, but, you know, these people hold a lot of the same frustration. There, there are bad eggs out there who genuinely believe that, you know, like black lives don't matter and that's why they don't support mm-hmm. black lives matter. But there are a lot of people out there who, 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 who you, who you ask why they don't support black lives matter. And they say that they literally say the same things that we're saying that uh, black lives matter right now in this moment and, um, and that right now that they're being unfairly treated and that we have this systematic racism, but for some reason they just shy away from that one phrase or they have some kind of something to pick, something to pick at with it. Um, but if we're just willing to talk to those people and get, you know, get on their, and get on their level and, 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 you know, like have civil discourse, I think we're, we're all able to realize that there, there is a lot more that we agree on than we disagree on. And that, and I think Black Lives Matter is just one of, one example of that, like um, you, you, you look at gun, gun control, uh, 97% of people in America support mm-hmm. universal background checks. Well, then why is it that such a significant chunk of America doesn't support the sentiment behind, or why is it that um, a significant chunk of America does not support, uh, you know, the actual prospect of gun control, despite literally supporting Yeah. The, the issues behind gun control. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you see this pretty much in every single issue. You see it with healthcare. You see it with the environment. Um, it's it's everywhere. But if we're just able to, you know, get onto the same level as these people and communicate about these issues, I, I think pretty much at, at from any degree, we agree on more than we di- uh, disagree on, and yeah. we're, we're all wanting to, you know, to deliver a better America for for the the kids of tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Like that, we we all want to do good. Right. Um, and 
I, I think we just all have to be willing to have an open mind and be willing to listen to people from across the aisle, um, be willing to listen to people that we don't necessarily agree with. How, how do you think COVID-19 is going to affect the election then come November? I think we're kind of getting a hint of it. Um, there's a significantly larger proportion of the electorate is opting to you know, do absentee ballots or ballots by mail. Um, I think that that's something that's being received well by the public. It's something that's kind of, you know, attracted support, but there's still been apprehension from different governments and stuff like that. So um, I don't know. It's I, what, when was the last time we had a pandemic, like literally a hundred years ago. Uh, so I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. But we're, we're just finding out as we go along, mm-hmm. I guess. And what do you have to say about, President Trump stating that mail-in ballots are going to lead to a quote-unquote rigged election. You know, I think that's funny because Trump voted in the primary using a mail-in ballot, um, <laughs> as did something like 80% of the uh, the Iowa Republican uh, state legislator caucus, or state legislative caucus, uh, despite, you know, voting to gut that same program for the general election, mm-hmm. um, or a universal mail-in ballot thing. Um, I, I think that uh, I think above all, we need to listen to the experts uh, when it comes to COVID. And if they're telling us that it's safer and or feasible to do, um, you know, mail on ballots. And I think that that's something that we ought to do. I think it's been something that we've been doing to some degree for the past um, for several years now. I mean, I voted absentee in um, in the primary in 2020 the uh, 2019 like constitutional election in school board elections. I voted, I voted absentee pretty much in every election for the past like two years because I've been off in DC. Um, I, I think that it's not righteous to say that it's going to cause voter fraud. I, th- I, don't, I don't really get that. I, I know the president has this tendency to create problems out of thin air and then the media tends to run on it. How do you suggest Americans stay informed in the midst of a national crisis with COVID-19? If I had to say it, I would just urge everyone to listen to the experts, um, listen to people like Dr. Fauci, um, mm-hmm. to the things that he's suggesting, because he's literally been, you know, like researching and specializing in this exact kind of situation for his entire career. Um, I think that we also need to hold an open mind and not you know, go crazy being stuck at home. I think everyone needs to continue social distancing. Everyone needs to, you know, um, wear masks if they can. Everyone needs to, um, you know, be civil. Obviously, it's we are living in very unprecedented times. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it, it's so hard to know what to do right at any given moment because there's no precedent for what is right. I, I I just my one hope is that we're all willing to listen to each other mm-hmm. and you know not get stuck in our own little bubbles, our own little echo echo chambers. They're stuck in our heads, or or think that someone's out to get us because I think we're all going through a tough tough situation right yeah. now. I think people tend to get angry at the media, and I think both um, liberals and conservatives always do their finger pointing at media. Do, do you think? Uh, the media is a major contributor to 
kind of giving the president a platform or do you think there are many other factors at play? Um, I do think the media kind of fumbled the ball in 2016 when it comes, when it came to, you know, um, fueling a lot of what brought about Trump. I thought, I think that the media pretty much handed Trump the presidency on a silver platter. Um, not just Trump, but also kind of the Republicans with how they, uh, you know, treated like the, the email scandal and just kind of like constantly hitting Hillary Clinton on little every yeah. little issue. That's a, they, they planned exa played exactly into the Republicans hand, uh, you know, by doing that. And uh, then Trump comes out of nowhere um, in, in, in the 11th hour. Uh, people initially didn't take him seriously, but then he, you know, he really started inspiring people. I think for legitimate reasons at that point in time, there was a lot of people who were frustrated with the direction that the country was going. And although he came out with like, you know, these outrageous claims, he, he did have this kind of, he, he had this spark, I guess. I don't know. I, I mean, I didn't support it, but I understand it. Yeah. Um, but I do think that 2020 is a totally different ball game. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, you know, I'm disappointed in what some channels do over others um yeah but i think generally speaking people are trying to do diligent work um yeah. even if that doesn't always bring the best results but mm -hmm. personally i try to stay away from television news because it you know as it does for pretty much everyone else who who watches it it drives you crazy same here yep same here. uh yeah, I, I, I prefer to just kind of like read it mm -hmm. um, or like hear about it or talk about it. So, I, I mean, I would advise others to kind of, you know, do that same thing. But um, I, I do think people are generally speaking, trying to do that the, the best that they can, given these circumstances, at least in, in most cases. Um, yeah. Going forward, what do you hope to do? in the political arena, arena, what are some pressing issues that you'd like to tackle? You know, I'm still holding true to a lot of the issues that first motivated me to get in politics into the first place. And that is, you know, like getting young people involved in politics. We still vote at the lowest proportion of pretty much every single age group, or actually no, every single age group in the United States. And that has mm -hmm. been the case pretty much forever now. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, a catastrophe in itself. And I think 2018 uh, reversed a lot of those changes, but there is still absolutely still so much work to do. That's something that I hold myself true to. Uh, the issue of gun reform, I, I think it's, you know, disastrous that we're not able to tackle this, frankly, really simple issue where there, there, there are so many remarkable solutions or at least things that can appease this issue, like right in front of you, passing universal background checks, raising uh, the age to purchase an assault rifle to 21, putting it on par with the handgun purchase age, uh, regulating the uh, the amount of, uh, you know, the size of ammo. You know, there's a lot that can be done. Obviously, it can keep going on and on about it. The env environment, you know, getting Trump out of office is a big one. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this, by the way. Um, of course, yeah. Before I go, I do want to say that that the election is November 3rd, that mm -hmm. this is no matter where you stand, no matter what you believe in, that we all ought to utilize our right to cast a ballot and make our voices heard. It is quite literally the only way that we can 
literally have a direct impact on the way that things are going right now in these very tumultuous times. So I would encourage each and every one of you to be mindful of uh, who's on your ballot, what's on your ballot, how to vote. Um, it's important. <laughs> yes, <laughs> very, yeah. very important. All right, thank you important. so much, man.